0: So, my name is Laurel McDonald, and I'm the interim director of the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. And on behalf of the University of Toronto Libraries, it's my honor and my pleasure to welcome you to the first Friends of the Fisher event of the season, the 19th Annual Mark Seltzer and John Seltzer Memorial Lecture. So, welcome everybody. Um, We're to capacity tonight, so clearly you missed us, and we missed you as well, so thank you. Um, It's my great pleasure um, that we have joining us uh, this evening um, Mrs. Seltzer and her daughter-in-law, Monique. So thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Mrs. Seltzer's been a wonderful friend of the library, and we're very grateful for her support of this wonderful lecture series throughout the years. Um, The Seltzer Lectures really have been responsible for bringing some fascinating and remarkable lectures to us here in Toronto, and clearly this year is no exception to that rule. So without further ado, I'm very um, pleased to introduce uh, tonight's guest lecturer. Um, As you'll notice, it it was scheduled to be uh, Professor Andrew Pedigree, pedigree, um, but unfortunately, due to a family emergency, he was unable to join us this evening. So don't be confused, you're at the right lecture tonight. (laughs) Um, In Dr. Pedigree's stead, um, we're very thrilled and very honored to have Dr. Pete Visser join us this evening, we're very grateful. Um, Professor Visser uh, is actually a professor emeritus um, at the Free University in Amsterdam. Um, He was also also with the University of Amsterdam as well as the chief curator of rare books, um, as well as um, the uh, history of church collections uh, and he was also the chair in the history of the book. Um, Dr. Visser is also a renowned scholar on the history of the book, on print, um, as well as religious nonconformism. So we're thrilled that you were able to join us this evening. And Dr. Visser has one of the most remarkable lecture titles I've ever seen, and that is Hidden Presses and Heretic Protestants Below Sea Level, Book Production for the Radical Reformers of the Netherlands. So. Um, We're very grateful that you're here, and thank you, Dr. Visser.
1: Thank you you for your kind introduction. Uh, Before I start, I want to express my gratitude for inviting me over here as a substitute Uh, Anyway, I hope you will not be uh, disappointed after the lecture. Uh, If you have questions, please feel free to do so. But before beginning, I want to express as a Dutchman my gratitude to the nation, the great nation of Canada. We all still remember and appreciate that the Canadian soldiers once liberated us from Nazi Germany. And we never forget that. And... Since I know there are so many countrymen starting a new life here in this great immigration country, uh, I also want to thank and appreciate, uh, express my appreciation for Canada today. Uh, we, we really appreciate your standards, your way of living, your sense of democracy and toleration. Uh, we like to boast in the Netherlands about a sense of toleration, but we are in different times now. And I think the way the Canadians cope with that, that serves as a great example to all of us in the Western Hemisphere. And so thank you for that. And now I come to my talk. Uh, I should press somewhere. Yes. At a Dutch book auction in 1986, I bought a small, nicely leather-bound volume of a Mennonite hymn book printed in 1662, which includes, at the end, preceding the final flyleaf, a martyr's song in contemporary handwriting, no doubt an addition by one of its first owners. The song is about the tragic fate of or Leonard Kaiser, who had been executed by burning at a stake in 1527 on the banks of the River Inn near Schierding, a small Austrian town on the Bavarian border. Martyrology, including martyr songs, has a long tradition in Anabaptist and Mennonite circles even to this very day among the Amish and conservative Mennonites who cherish the edifying and inspiring examples of hardship and steadfastness of their 16th century persecuted ancestors. And so the story of Leonard Kaiser also forms an integral part of the famous Martyr's Mirror, a huge volume that is still in use, and which contained detailed accounts about interrogations, executions, eyewitness reports, uh, and letters of more than 800 men and women uh, who were executed between 1525 and 1660, 618 from the Netherlands and some 119 from elsewhere in Europe. The Martyr's Mirror, is a translation of the Dutch original from 1660, compiled by a Mennonite pastor with the name Tilman Janszoon van Bracht. The manuscript, Leonard's Song, surprised me by its miracle story of the actual execution event. While the condemned Leonard was being transported to the execution site, he picked up a little flower and spoke to the judge who wrote beside him, I quote, If my body is burned successfully, including this tiny flower, then your sentence was right. However, if not, then repent and do penance for your sins. Hearing this, three executioners heated up the fire by adding extra logs, But as soon as all the locks were consumed, Leonard's heart was still beating while the unharmed flower remained in his hand. After the second no, even after the third attempt, uh, during which the executioners also chopped his body and limbs into pieces, the eager tongues of fire proved unsuccessful in swallowing Leonard's desire for justice. And so, as an act of despair, it was then decided to throw all the roasted body parts into the river In Such a miraculous account sounded so saintly to me and therefore so un that I got triggered to track down its origins. I discovered that there had been two versions of Leonard's execution uh, tale. The handwritten Dutch miraculous flower version of the hymn could be tracked down to a Dutch Mennonite martyrology from 1640. It appears that its editors had found this story in a 1570 manuscript chronicle about the history of the Hutterites, an Anabaptist sect then living in Moravia on the border of Czechia and Hungary. It was an eyewitness from Schirding, a Lutheran convert to the Hutterite brethren who had introduced Leonard's remarkable story of suffering to the canon of Anabaptist martyrology, including the flower episode. Yes, Leonard Kaiser had never been an Anabaptist at all, but died as a Lutheran martyr. However... In these pre-Twitter times of spicy stories and hearsay harassments, the air around Leonard's execution had indeed been filled with gossip and rumor. This was ignited by eight editions of a pamphlet, which came out in the same year, 1527 all of which reported the threefold burning attempts on the final drowning scene in a sensational and dodgy detailed tone and style. However, there was no mention of the miraculous flower episode. The following year, Martin Luther himself disturbed that all these rumors and fantasy tales might impede the sane course of his reform efforts in this area, published yet another pamphlet produced at, by his Wittenberg printer, Hans Luft, entitled, Von Er, Lenhard Kaiser, in Bayern, um des Evangelii willen verbrannt, eine selige Geschichte, in which he downsized the actual execution to more realistic proportions, based on reports from local authorities. The day of the execution in August 1527 had been very stormy and rainy, and so these uh, bad weather conditions were the cause of the great trouble of keeping the fire burning with lethal power. This demythologized version of Leonard's execution had first been adopted by Sebastian Frank in his famous Chronicle of 1531, subsequently by the Lutheran theologian and martyrologist Ludwig Rabus in 1554, as well as in the martyrology by Jean Crespin, a Genevan printer and friend of John Calvin, whose version also appeared in the first Dutch Reformed Book of Martyrs compiled by a man called Adrian van Hamstede in 1559. Isn't it revealing how the tragic death of a single person could become an agent in promoting piety and propaganda of not just the competing churches of the Magisterial Reformation, the Lutherans and the Calvinists, but also of their shared radical enemies, the Anabaptists? It is not hard to imagine how Martin Luther and his Wittenberg in-crowd of campaigners and media strategists were uh, enraged about this ill-perceived event, especially by the Schwermgeister fanatics, as Luther would say, not only including reformers such as, for instance, Martin Butzer and Ulrich Swingley, but particularly the Anabaptists. Like a modern reformer of yet another kind, you can loudly hear him dump on those bastards of misperception and fake news as bad people. Very bad people, (laughs) period. Just this small episode from the early Reformation era is so revealing for a variety of phenomena, dealing not only with facts and fantasy, or oral and written communication traditions, but also with communication as such, the reception and perception of opinions and propaganda for the Lutheran cause, as well as Luther's unprecedented application of the power of the printing press. Luther's personal eagerness to set things straight in this Shearing case involving a false image building of his church reform by means of the printing press perfectly fits the message of the marvelous book by our intended speaker for today. Andrew Predigree entitled Brand Luther 1517 Printing and the Making of the Reformation that appeared with Penguin Press, Penguin Press in 2015. That study is not yet an autobiography of a once little-known German professor who in 1517 proposed an academic debate about 95 theses against indulgences, which within five years would bring the German church uh, into immense turmoil, resulting in a deluge that flowed well beyond its borders. No, the concern of Pedigree's book is how, I quote, In the very different communication environment of 500 years ago, a theological spat could become a great public event, embracing churchmen and lay people over a wide span of the European landmass. Allow me yet another longer quotation from the preface of his book, which may lead us into the heart of this challenging case study. Luther, like most of the great figures in history, was also very lucky. He was fortunate in the protection he received from influential patrons and in the fact that they could see how protecting him could suit their purposes. Secondly, Luther also chose his moment well. When Luther first spoke out against indulgences, Europe was beginning to embrace a new and powerful communication process, the printing press. Luther himself had reached his maturity and a position of modest responsibility and respect in his local order, he was an Augustinian, as you know, without publishing a book. Yet within five years of penning the 95 Theses, he was Europe's most published author ever. Luther made the bold and radical decision to speak beyond an informed audience of trained theologians and address the wider German public in their own language, German. Luther's writings electrified Germany, but they also transformed the dynamics of the printing industry. Until 1517, Wittenberg, a small and remote town, and miles away from any of the large markets, had only one not very competent printing press. But by the time of Luther's death, that was in 1546, the town's production matched that of Germany's mightiest cities. Over the 16th century as a whole, Wittenberg was Germany's largest printing center. This was Luther's achievement. He spent his life in and out the print shops, observing and directing. Luther understood the aesthetics of the book. He appreciated that the quality and design of the printed artifact that presented his message was itself a visual totem to its respectability and truth. Luther transformed the look of the book. In this, he had a crucial support of Lucas Cranach. An artist and a publisher. His designs clothed Luther's works in a new and distinctive livery, immediately recognizable on a crowded bookstall. Apart from broadsheets with short propaganda texts, illustrations, and cartoons to uh, be posted on walls, doors, and streets, and you find some nice examples in the back of this room over there and I just learned that you recently uh, acquired them. That is amazing. Also, newly invented by Luther and his creative printers like Cranach and Hans Luft was a new type of booklet, the pamphlet in quarto format of only eight or 16 pages long, containing short texts in the vernacular, easy and quick to produce and which could be bought for less than the price of a chicken. Luther would pass the text of a newly printed pamphlet to yet another friendly printer and or to a sympathizing bookseller or traveling merchant, traders and preachers promoted it and then waited for it to ripple through the networks of printing centers across Germany. The annual Frankfurt Buchmesse, the book fair which is still important today also played then an important role in transmitters in transmitting Luther's message. And all people involved, printers in major cities in particular, would profit greatly from this network process. No doubt there are some parallels with our online system of blogs, social networks, and discussion threads. Luther's networked public was not just an audience who consumed his messages, they acted also as intermediaries in the growing Reformation community all over Germany and beyond. And as with likes and retweets today, the number of reprints serves as an indi- indicator of a given item's popularity. Luther's first pamphlet, written in German, Ein Samon oder Predigt von dem Absatzlass, und Gnade was reprinted 14 times in 1518 alone, in print runs of at least 1,000 copies each time. Of the 6,000 different pamphlets that were published in German-speaking lands between 1520 and 1526, some 1,700 editions were editions of only a few dozen works by Luther. However, we should not forget that the success of Luther's Reformation began and ended with the willingness or unwillingness of the councils of imperial and other free cities or with evangelical princes to favor the cause of religious change. Nine years after the causa Lutheri had been dealt with at Worms, that took place in 1521 when he was banned, things had changed drastically. In 1530, at the Diet of Augsburg, many imperial cities and territories had embraced the cause of the new gospel. How different was the situation of the early Reformation in the Low Countries, where the strict and centralized rule of Charles V's Holy Empire? was executed from Brussels. Both the theological faculty of Louvain University, where once Erasmus had taught, and Charles' personal inquisitor, van der Hulst, served as watchdogs for the purity of the Church of Rome. Already in 1523, soon after the Edict of Worms and Luther's ban, the hunt for heretics was intensified. Two Augustinian friars were burnt at a stake in Brussels for spreading, the, for spreading the Lutheran heresy. And so, commemorated by Luther himself in a famous martyr song, Hendrik Fuss and Jan van Essen would be the first Lutheran martyrs, not only of the Low Countries, but also of the Reformation. In contrast to the success of the Reformation in Germany, Lutheranism was hardly able to get a grip on the religious situation of the Low Countries. The only exception was the international port and business hub, Antwerp, which was also the center of book production, not only of the Dutch, but also for the English and Scandinavian book markets. And you can see upstairs a nice copy of a Tyndale New Testament, which is actually printed in Antwerp. Nevertheless, there was a great demand for Luther's writing in Dutch translation, particularly of the New Testament and also the complete Bible a decade later, would soon be printed in high numbers. The story of Luther's efforts to complete his German translation of the New Testament before the Frankfurt Book Fair of September 1522 is an amazing one. This succeeded in part thanks to the assistance of investors, correctors, cashmakers, and typesetters, layout designers, and publication strategists inside and outside the Wittenberg print shop of Michael Lotter, Jr., Jr., as you would say. Also helpful was the innovative addition of reading and interpretation tools for a non-scholarly audience of lay people. Luther called them the rudissimists consisting of extra textual elements of short introductions to the various books and chapters explanatory notes in the margins and programmatic illustrations by Lucas Cranach like this uh, his magnificent woodcut series uh, for the book of revelation there are also uh, typical they, these are also typical of the brand luther and his mastering of the powers of the press allowing his message to go viral for a large audience. Within nine months, the first Dutch translation of Luther's New Testament came off the Antwerp Press of a print shop owned by Adrian van Bergen, soon to be followed by yet another translation from the Amsterdam printer Doon Peterson. During Luther's lifetime, more than 75 editions of this New Testament in Dutch, in many thousands of copies, would be distributed secretly from predominantly Antwerp print shops. Book printer Adrian van Bergen, who had been prosecuted in 1534 for owing a big supply of heretical books, fled to the north and settled in Delft. But also there, in 1542, he was caught again and first sentenced to go on a pilgrimage to Nicosia on Cyprus, which, however, after an appeal by the high court, was changed to execution by decapitation. Three years later, in 1545, another Antwerp colleague by the name of Jacob Liesvelt. Another important Protestant Bible producer was likewise sentenced to death. In 1546, the imperial authorities, in close collaboration with the Louvain theologians, published their Index Librorum Prohibitorum. Upstairs, you find another Index Librorum Prohibitorum, which covers the whole domain of Europe. This one was particularly. Destiny, uh, uh, was focused on the Netherlands only. It's a long and frequently updated list of forbidden books which included 42 Dutch editions of the Bible. Not only the production and distribution of those titles were subject to legal measures including death sentences, but also the mere procession of them, as well as gatherings of reading and study groups for heretical texts. Where things in the German territory were running out of hand, here the emperor and his Brussels court applied all means to keep this already heated up landscape below sea level pure. Nevertheless, yet another reformation movement began pouring out its deadly carbon dioxide emissions, a violation of the Corpus Christianum the age-old unity of church and state by proclaiming free churches and believers' baptism. This was achieved by the Anabaptists, the very first reformation movement of the Low Countries that succeeded in establishing a radical new concept for the corrupted Roman Catholic Church, while denying any state control of the religious mind of each individual and his or her relationship with God. Uh, now we come to the really tough stuff. I need another sip if you will excuse me. It all began with Melchior Hoffman a farrier and former missionary of Lutheranism in the Baltic and Scandinavian regions. He had turned to Anabaptism as soon as he encountered those radical ideas in Strasbourg during disputations and meetings with sympathizers from the South. The Anabaptist movement had originated as a dissatisfied offspring from Zwingli's Reformation of Zurich in Switzerland. Once Hoffman had moved to the North German freeport of Amden in 1530, he disseminated his newly acquired ideas into the Netherlands, with the aid of dozens of so-called apostles. The message of voluntary church planting, adult baptism instead of child baptism, separation of church and state, and the non-swearing of oath was well appreciated. However, conversion also implied the stigma of an outcast from state and society. Of Hoffman's 13 writings published between 1530 and 1533, only one, now lost, was likely printed in the Netherlands, whereas the majority in a low German dialect had come from a Strasbourg press, at least as far as we know. They were all typographically boring booklets of octavo size, nothing like the attractive quarto pamphlets pamphlets from Luther's multimedia operation. And so, in contrast to Luther's powerful media infrastructure, the beginning of anabaptism in the Netherlands demonstrates that even other and also older modes of communication, like persuasion by preaching and proselytizing in secret could still achieve positive results. Also, reproduction by handwriting, or for instance sermons and tracts in several copies, may have been helpful. However this may have been, Hoffman's prophecies and speculations about the imminent coming of Christ would lead to an unprecedented revolutionary phase of Dutch Anabaptism, an outburst of heretical pollution causing horror and panic over civil decency, offending both church and state, not just in the Low Countries, but also far beyond. In 1534, the fanatical and exhausted expectations about Christ's return on earth resulted in establishing a biblical New Jerusalem in the Westphalian city of Munster, just across the border of the Eastern Netherlands. Its main propagator was a new prophet called King Jan van Leiden, a man with great charisma, yet also a ruthless tyrant, who did not dream of 72 virgins in heaven for Allah's sake, but who preferred them to have in his own bed by introducing polygamy. One year later, when Münster was recaptured and its promulgators butchered, the Dutch Anabaptist movement, or what was left of it, was in great despair over how to recover. It is noteworthy that, again, the printing press had played hardly any significant role in promoting this Münster experiment. Jan van Leiden was mostly occupied by showing off in fancy robes and royal regalia, and by maintaining the hierarchical order of court, kingdom, and subordinates, and you should know that there were twice as much women than men in the city, who in the end suffered horribly under his ruthless thumb. There was a small press within the city walls, but that would produce only three or four theological tracts by Münster's local pastor and ideologist, Bernard Rothmann. And those pamphlets were no sweeping propaganda. Nevertheless, in only one month, some 3,000 people from all over Holland had been aroused by messengers or simply by hearsay to join in. There were also mass meetings and little riots elsewhere in the country, or a bunch of streakers in midwinter and a failed coup d'etat in Amsterdam, all of which helped to stir some curious minds of the silent majorities. <coughs> However this may be, two men in particular, the spiritualist leader and prophet David Joris, David Joris from Delft. Holland, <clears throat> and a former Roman Catholic priest, Manuel Simons from Witmarsum in Friesland, were the first church leaders courageous enough to reinvent and create their own varieties of Dutch Anabaptism, and, fully illegal and generally more hated than ever before, to restore congregational life on the ruins of Munster. Between 1536 and 1440, David Joris uh, was the more important of the two leaders. My good friend Gary Wade, he is here on the front row, and I'm happy he's here. Uh, He talked me into this event, so (laughs) without him I wouldn't have been here. From the University of New Brunswick is the world's only expert of the complicated life and inscrutable and idiosyncratic thought of this most interesting radical reformer. David's adherents were not to be found in strictly defined congregations. Being a spiritualist, Joris favored the invisible church and the inner spiritual renewal of each individual. Soon he was proclaimed the third David, a prophet who revealed divine truth. Like Luther, the academic theologian who favored the German vernacular to reach out to the masses, David Joris, the true amateur of the Holy Spirit, also spoke and wrote in Dutch only. I have to admit the man could not talk any other language. But unlike Luther, his appreciation of the vernacular was not a choice of strategy, but purely motivated by prophetic enlightenment. In one of Joyce's many poems, the so called Ballad of the Plain Dutch language, he explains that God had first given Hebrew to the Old Testament peoples from the south and from the East. Then the Apostles were coming and preaching the Gospel that God had given to the Greek in the south. However, as soon as in the west the Church of Rome was established, Latin had taken its place. But now, at this very moment, God had finally favored the region from the north, thus making Dutch the only vehicle of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> rising about above all languages. Joris and his following suffered from severe persecution. Many of them were caught and executed for that reason. And in 1544, Joris found a refuge in the Swiss city of Basel, where the arts heretic would lead the life of a nobleman under a false name. From this shelter, he remained a leader from a distance, who still wrote many tracts and letters in secrecy to his gradually shrinking following in the north. In 1556, Joris died as a widely respected citizen of the city of Basel, but almost three years later, when the true identity of the so-called nobleman had come to light, his exhumed corpse was burned in the city marketplace, together with his portrait and a number of his books. Whereas Jesus Christ had come to life twice, David Joyce would join the dubious ranks of those few with double death rituals. Mano Simons, David's post-Munster competitor, would die in oblivion, buried in a remote corner of his kitchen garden. Initially, Mano had fled to East Frisia, a tolerant duchy in northern Germany, where he claimed his leadership in about 1539, at a time that David Joris' leadership role became more challenged. Mano, too, was a self-made theologian, yet from a different nature than Joris. He strongly opposed opposed prophecies prophecies and self-declared holiness while emphasizing a strict reading of the Bible, the relevance of the gospel for the imitation of Christ and its ethical consequences in daily practice. Over time, he and his growing flock of Mennonites turned to increasingly strict church discipline. At the end of his life, when his leadership role was challenged, quarrels and disputes about disciplinary matters would bring about many schisms. However, despite severe persecution causing the death of some 2,000 Mennonites and despite all internal disagreements, Menno Simons, a man constantly on the run and his local helpers, had succeeded in establishing a growing network of free churches in the major cities along the coastal, the lake and river routes of the Low Countries, from Groningen to Ghent. I will conclude now by briefly discussing whether or not a printing press played any kind of branding role in both David's and Menno's different trajectories. Unlike Luther's overwhelming output, we should note that neither Menno's nor David Joris's printed books bear any print imprint or a colophon. Fortunately, book historians of the Dutch Reformation era owe a great deal to the patience and intellect of this man, the late Paul Velkema Blau. This scholar, who spent almost his entire life hiding in the walls and stacks of our Amsterdam University rare book department, there is still hope for young scholars uh, at the beginning of a career... (laughs) Had incredibly analyzed the typographical particularities of at least 7,438 16th century books, either with or without imprints. He collected and analyzed all available typefaces, initials, and woodcut ornaments like vignettes, and pieces, etc. Mind you, all this research took place long before our viral age of Google and Gomorrah. His piles of photocopies were clipped out and pasted on many thousands of cards in a manifold of filling cabinets. His lifelong research resulted in a two-volume catalogue, the Typographia Batava, and some 35 articles that were collected a couple of years ago posthumously, in a Brill series, also supervised by Andrew Pedigree. Of all anonymous Anabaptist and Mennonite pre-1600 books, pamphlets, and broadsides, altogether 1,200 titles, Volkma Blau had identified at least 80% of their places of origin and names of the printers. When we now turn to the printed output of Mennon Simons, then it becomes clear... (coughs) then it becomes clear that he had hardly any resources. And being a hunted refugee himself, he was also incapable of establishing his own Wittenberg in the marshlands of the northern middle of nowhere. Nevertheless, Menho's extraordinary radical reform program could not do without the printed word for two reasons, albeit on the dark web. First, he not only had to convince his growing flock, but above all, the persecuting worldly powers of the harmless, even defenseless, intentions of his reform movement in separation from the world. And secondly, he was forced to defend his theological views against a growing number of Dutch Reformed polemicists, who were soon to become his most relevant Calvinist competitors. Menno's first, book printed, first books printed between 1539 and 1543 had a fake address of Nicolaas van Oldenburg, whom Volkema Blau identified as a man called Matthias Krum from Antwerp. As it happened in 1543, 600 copies of one of those volumes were seized in the ship of the Amsterdam bookseller Jan Klaas, 400 of which had to be sent to Friesland. The following year, the poor bookseller was sentenced to death. In the meantime, some other writings, including Menno's most important foundation book, appeared off the press of yet an unknown printer in the northeastern regions, likely Daventer, which had also produced early works of David Joris. Some ten years elapsed before any more treatises by Menno appeared in print, once more in Antwerp by a printer named Hans van Ruremonde. At that time, Menno was traveling to Pomerania, hiding in Hanseatic cities like Lübeck and Wismar, a distance from Antwerp by land of 700 kilometers by ship and favoring winds a week's journey. Apparently, to mislead the Dutch authority, Ruremonde's books had a double-headed eagle on the title page, which was reminiscent of the coat of arms of the city of Lübeck. In the course of 1554, Menno himself was offered hospitality by the noble family von Ahlerfeldt on their estate of Freisenborg near Aldersloh, a small town in Schleswig-Holstein in northern Germany. Here, in a newly built home where Menno would stay for the rest of his life, he and some friends installed a printing press which produced at least four titles, including a revised version of his foundation book. The name of the printer of this Frasenborg press still remains a secret. Also, why this enterprise was closed after just one year is still a mystery. Fortunately enough, and this is again one of the many discoveries of Volkema Blau, Soon another printer would devote his entire production to the Mennonite cause, and his name was Jan Hendricks, originating from Utrecht, who had settled in Franeker, in Menno's homeland, Friesland, likely with the help of some well-off benefactors who had fled from Flanders. Apart from five books by Menno, this press also produced hymn books, Bibles, and other Mennonite works, including writings by Menno's co-worker, Dirk Phillips. However, it is also noteworthy to discover that some of Menno's printed works circulated in various manuscript copies, as if Gutenberg inventions had never occurred. Meadows' modest number of 23 printed books is almost nothing when compared to the 240 known book titles of David Joris. Again, all of them without any imprint, but with more fanciful typography. I will refrain from a detailed survey of all its printers and places of origin. However, mention should be made of the Daventer printers Albert Pothraat and Dirk van den Borne, who, beginning in 1537, published a substantial number of his early writings, for which they too were arrested, although they luckily got away with light punishments. Another printer for Joris was the earlier mentioned Adrian van Bergen from Antwerp, who in 1542 was sentenced to death. After Joris had settled in Basel, Switzerland, many titles were likely printed in Germany. The Lubeck printer Ludwig Dietz would become the most important producer of the Prophets' unstoppable flow of spiritualist letters and treatises, comprising some 40 titles. It is not hard to imagine that such a long-distance publication operation, 900 kilometers between Poland and Basel, uh, required assistance from local sympathizers who acted as correctors and distributors. Like Menno's books, the vast majority of David Joris's works were simply printed in the small octavo size. And again, some of them have also survived as handwritten copies, indicating that not all followers could afford a printed book. <coughs> Sorry. Only one title of David Joris uh, requires some more attention. It was the magnum opus The Wonder Book, a huge volume of some 700 pages in a large quarto size, which has been printed by the aforementioned Dirk van den Borne from Daventer, despite his arrest in previous years. The production began in 1542, but judging from the changes that were made in the text which required extensive corrections on the press, the final version will not have been ready until 1544. The whole production process, and likewise the fundraising to cover the costs, had been supervised by Yoros's close friend and assistant, Jorian Cato, one of the most expert and devoted followers. However, Cato was imprisoned soon after the book was finished. He was executed that very same year, 1544. By contemporary Dutch standards of format and layout, the Wonder Book was an imposing publication. The book contains three instructive woodcuts designed by David Joris himself, who by profession was a skilled glass painter. The, book's al- the book also has numerous figures of hands printing in the margins, pointing at relevant passages in the text. Also judging from a variety of calligraphic initials, initials and the excellent quality of the paper, this production was an expensive enterprise. And luckily, from a letter by yours, we know that the printing cost had risen to some 430 guilders a sum that might be multiplied by 200 to get an idea of its actual cost by today's standards. Among his investors were the well-off Antwerp families van Berchem and van Leer, who gave shelter to the prophet before they all would finally set sail to Basel. However immensely despite this third David may have been by Protestant orthodoxy, and political powers, not only at a time, but also over many subsequent decades, secret appreciation of many of his authentic ideas would long survive, such as, for instance, his plea for toleration and his rejection of the devil's existence. This admiration is also apparent from the magnificent and costly reprint of his wonderbook that in 1584 secretly came off the press of Dirich Müllem from the small city of Vianen near Utrecht. This folio-sized book, commissioned by an anonymous merchant from Emden, is a fine example of stunning typographical beauty on thick paper. It also has the illustrations designed by Joris, including those of the new man and the bride of Christ, but now etched by the famous Flemish artist Hieronymus Wierigs. It is very tempting to discuss the spiritual meanings of all the impudently exposed body parts of both genders. Yes, you may call these pictures an early example of Dutch bluntness. And yes, I have to confess that some people in the Netherlands like to call this heavenly bride on the snake-bitten globe disrespectfully as any with the hoover. (laughs) But for the sake of time, I will refrain from such an enlightened explanation. To conclude... I think it fair to suggest that David Joris was able to approach perhaps only one or two aspects of the impressive branding machinery that Luther had created. Fact is, there are no clues to suggest that the Dutch radical reformers showed any particular interest in such a type of branding. They not only risked their own lives but also simply lacked the uh, favorable opportunities that had encouraged Luther's operation so remarkably. Without any underestimation of the relevance of the printed medium, particularly for David Joris, who could not rely on any institutional structure of local congregations, it is clear that for the introduction of Anabaptism and Mennonitism in the Low Countries, it was the older powers of communication, the spoken and written word that proved most relevant. Especially for the people in the street, many of whom who were illiterate and who had to be persuaded to the radical new cause, face to face and one by one. Despite Luther's great strategy of reaching out to the masses in the vernacular, In the end, however, he always had to deal with the scholarly and political elites to reach his goal. And so one really wonders whether those other and older rhetorical agents might still also have been at work to create unique Brand Luther. Thank you.
0: One question. Just one. Um, does anybody have any questions for Dr. Guster? Oh, Mr. You mentioned that many men who were arrested and killed. That was by the civil
1: authority, was it? Yes. It it was only Catholic. The Catholic Church played a role of (coughs) deciding whether or not books that were printed illegally had a heretic content or not. Uh, It's it's not that long ago, a couple of years ago, that there have been a reconciliation process between some of those radical reformed uh, 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 ancestors of, uh, of the Mennonites, and Lutherans and, and other churches uh, with the Pope of Rome, and then it came out again and was stated once more, uh, the Roman Catholic Church did was not involved in the actual killing of the people who perpetrated the civil laws. And so they simply blamed it all on the civil authorities. And they actually, yes, they executed the people who were fined for spreading, printing, or owning or reading heretical books. In the Netherlands, the situation was, was quite different. You know, from, from province to province, the measures were not all equally executed. Some provinces in the north, for instance, they simply denied all the regulations that came from Brussels. And they say, well, you heretics go ahead. We organize a mass meeting for three days. For 1,500 wild Anabaptists in a meadow, it's in the middle of winter again, and they simply let it go, and there was no measure taken. In Friesland, for instance, the, the adjacent province, the authorities were much stricter in, in abiding to the rule of, of Brussels, and they many, many victims have been caused uh, to that cause in Friesland. I hope this is somewhat an answer. Scholars always have the tendency to talk uh, talk longer than (laughs) (laughs) necessary. Excuse me for that.
0: I think that's all the time that we have for Dr. Fister. So thank you so much for the (laughs) wonderful. And again, I I wanted to thank the Seltzer family so much for sponsoring these lectures. We're very, very grateful uh, for that. So thank you. several of the wonderful works um, that's, that are in PJ Carefoot's exhibition, The Flickering of the Flame. So you now have the opportunity um, to have a peek at the exhibition. We very much encourage you to, to look at the items. Um, next week we'll actually have the formal exhibition opening um, and the catalog will be available then as well. So hopefully we'll see you all next week. Um, so again, thank you all so much for coming out and joining us this evening and hopefully we'll see you next week as well. So thank you all.